Well, we did start a sermon series last week on divine interruptions, God's sovereignty in our lives. And really, we talked quite a bit last week about um, how painful uh, interruptions are in our lives. And it's just kind of interesting. Why, why are interruptions so painful? Well, really, because an interruption, by definition, is about our plans getting derailed, right? Our plans. We like our plans, don't we? We care deeply about our plans, what we want to do. Um, so obviously not getting to do what we want to do is painful, right? Nobody likes interruptions. That's what we were talking about. And yet, could it be possible that some of our plans may not be what's best for us? It's a hard question to kind of think about, right? Especially in our culture today. Um, we want to be in charge, right? Don't I know what's best for me? Is there someone else who could possibly know better than me what, what I want to be doing? And that ultimately was our discussion last week, right? We looked at the passage in Luke 5 when Simon Peter and a few of the other soon-to-be disciples of Jesus were really, they were minding their own business, weren't they? They were just happy to be about their own plan for their lives. They weren't bothering anybody, right? Most of them probably were making a living exactly the way their dad made a living and his dad and his dad and his dad. Their, their lives, their plans probably had been mapped out since they were small boys, right? Imagine what kind of interruption it would have taken to, take, to have them reconsider their plans, right? Ever since they were a small boy, they knew exactly what they were going to do. Now, what did we call Jesus last week? What was his title? Jesus the Interrupter. Jesus the Interrupter, right? And that's what he was. And that's what he still is, right? These fishermen, they had had a horrible night the night before. They had fished the whole night and hadn't caught one thing. These are professional fishermen, right? How do you not catch even one thing, right? Then Jesus shows up on the scene, and while they were busy resetting their nets, their boats, to get ready for another night fishing, I mean, what does Jesus do? Jesus gets into Simon Peter's boat so he can do some teaching. Sure, is that what you're all about, Jesus? Is that the only thing that you wanted to do? <laughs> Simon Peter, to his credit, of course, obliges and allows Jesus to use his boat. He even has him go out a little bit further, just like Jesus asked him to, and I mean, not, not too much harm is done, right, by what Jesus was asking, but, but then Jesus kind of applies the screws, doesn't he? Jesus, after he's done fishing, or after he's done teaching, he asks, <laughs> tells Simon Peter, hey, why don't you put, put down the nets for a catch? And after a long and frustrating and tiring night, of not catching anything. Think about this. This would have been not a small request, right? This was a huge deal. This was a full-on interruption to Simon Peter's life. A nasty one, right? This teacher is trying to interrupt my day. I'm already grumpy, right? And he shows up. How dare Jesus act like he knows what's best? Don't you think that might have been some of the thought in Simon Peter's head, or at least in our head if we were there. But back to the question, don't I know what is best for me? Don't I know what's best for me? 
and, and honestly, I probably do know what's best for me. Maybe I'm the best one to know what's best for me. As long as <laughs> there's no such thing as God, right? As long as there's nothing up above here in my life, nobody up there, right? As long as, as we all we are all that there is, right? As long as the only thing in this life is what we can see and touch, right? But what if there is something else? What if there is someone else? What if the Bible is true? What if there is a creator who put all this together, put us together? That would be a pretty powerful God, wouldn't it? A pretty smart God, wouldn't you think? If there is a God like the one described in the Bible, he certainly could say, as we looked at last week, in Isaiah 55, verse 8, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than yours, my thoughts than your thoughts. I mean, it wouldn't be a stretch at all to say that this God, if he's a creator God like that, that he knows more than us, right? Is that a stretch? <laughs> that he knows things even about life more than us, our life even. Could that be true? I mean, he really would know more about everything than us, wouldn't he? I mean, he's the one that it, he created our, our existence. He invented it all, right? And this God, if he existed, he wouldn't just be powerful. What if the Bible were true and he truly is like he describes himself to be in our last sermon series when we looked at Exodus 34, verse 6, God talking about himself? It says, and God passed in front of Moses, proclaiming about himself, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. I mean, what if that supreme power who created the universe also was an amazing, loving God? What if the Bible's true? So not only is God smarter than us, but he now also has our best interest in mind. <laughs> what if that were true? What if the Bible were true? Uh, now how are we answering this question, don't I know what is best for me? There's someone who might know me better that knows what's best for me more than I do. But it really doesn't matter, does it? I mean, this supreme power, powerful God, this loving Savior God, I mean, think about it. He wouldn't have any time for me anyway, right? We're so puny, so little. I mean, there's 8 billion people on the planet. How can he pay attention to all of us, right? I mean, what is mankind that he would be mindful of us, really? You ever thought about that before? So yes, he might be a great advisor, and certainly if he were real, if I had to be interrupted of my plans, he'd be the one, right? It'd be okay. He knows some things. He cares about me. If he were real and if he ever interacted with humans anymore, I'd be game to follow what he says. You with me? <laughs> and this is truly what Simon Peter and his buddies could possibly have been thinking. 
Sure, those old stories of long ago about Moses and Abraham and all those stories that they would have known, yeah, they're fun, they're good, but there hadn't been a God sighting in over 400 years, right? If those stories were even true in the first place, right? So I'm pretty safe to be doing my own planning, don't you think? It would take some strong convincing otherwise, at least, right? And this is why Jesus causes such a big interruption in Simon Peter's life, right? He could have walked right up to Peter and he said, and say, hey, Peter, I know you don't know me well, but hey, I know what's best. Why don't you just drop everything you know and follow me? How do you think that would have went over? <laughs> like a lead balloon, maybe? You ever seen a lead balloon before? That was a cool picture. I had to throw that in there. And yet, give Simon, Peter, and the others enough evidence? Say a boat so full that their boat begins to sink. How about something like that, right? Something that these fishermen knew was impossible. Something that they knew it just couldn't have happened unless something was happening beyond what they could see, or beyond what they could touch. And we find Peter, in response, on his knees, right, before Jesus, wondering if he's even worthy to be in the presence of someone like him, right? In fact, Simon Peter surrenders his whole life to Jesus to do whatever he wants with him. That is a major interruption in life, isn't it? That is a monumental interruption. I mean, what would it take for you to be there? What would it take? I mean, how big of an interruption would it take for God to get your attention. You think about that? And as I said last week, be careful how you answer that question, right? Because Jesus is the interrupter. He, he's not afraid to make a scene, is he? He's not afraid. I mean, he has a knack of interrupting and challenging social norms, religious norms, Whatever that goes against God's plans, he's up for it, right? And truthfully, if Jesus knows best, if he truly knows what's best for us, wouldn't it be the most loving thing for him to do is to interrupt our lives when there is a better plan for us? You think that's true? That if he's truly loving and he really is as smart as he seems to be, wouldn't it be the loving thing to do to actually just get us out of our plan, right? To do his. I mean, when we look at it through this light, aren't interruptions actually the grace of God? I mean, it's, it's a gift when God interrupts us and gives us an opportunity to rethink what we were planning to do. You think? That's a really uncomfortable place to be thinking about that, right? In fact, we talked about one of the most important times in our lives is when God breaks in and he helps us to see that we're headed down the wrong road, that we're not following his ways, and he gives us an opportunity to repent. That word just means to turn from whatever direction we're going and go his way, right? He gives us that opportunity to follow him as our Lord and Savior, right? That would be, again, surrendering your whole life. To him? 
I mean, this is what Jesus was doing when he called his disciples, wasn't it? And just like Simon Peter, we are his disciples, aren't we? At least if we choose to follow his way, right? At least if we choose to follow him, believe the Bible is true, believe he is who he says he is, right? This is what Jesus is doing when he calls us to follow him. What we often call our moment of salvation when we give our lives to Jesus. It's not just a quick prayer and it's over. This is a major huge moment in our life, isn't it? Our moment of salvation. I mean, think about it. Our biggest moment in our whole lives is an interruption. Think about it. (laughs) Something that caused us to not do what we had planned to do, to not let us be in charge. And many of the big moments in in life, they're just like that, aren't they? As uncomfortable as the interruptions are, we should work to come to a place where we just welcome any interruptions that God wants to put in our life, right? Just give it to me. If I'm headed the wrong way, please let me know. I want to know, right? Isn't that our heart with the Lord? But that's a scary place to live, isn't it? And the tricky part in this, something that we're going to continue to look at in this series, is this question. What does an interruption from God even look like? I mean, I think most of us would would be okay with interruptions from God if we knew for sure it was from God and not just us going through a difficult time, right? There's, but there's no big flashing light that says, God moment, <laughs> divine interruption, here you have it. I mean, if that were the case, I mean, if there was a loud voice from heaven telling us, hey, pay attention, we'd be okay with that, right? But, but most often it's just this normal ordinary, difficult interruption in our life when God's trying to talk to us, right? How can we recognize a divine interruption when it happens? Isn't that a good question? And this reminds me of a story that's told of a storm that descended on a small town and the downpour caused by the storm just continued to come and, and there was great flooding and and as the waters rise, this local preacher, he kneels in prayer at the church, church porch. He's surrounded by water. And after a while, one of the townsfolk comes up the street in a canoe. And he says, hey, preacher, get in. <laughs> the waters are rising fast. Come on, let's go. And the preacher says, no, nah, I have faith in the Lord. He's going to save me. Still the waters rise. Now the preacher's up up on the balcony of the church, right? The water's still coming up, and he's just kind of wringing his hands, praying so passionately when another guy comes zipping along in a motorboat this time. Come on, preacher. We need to get you out of here. The levee's about to break. Once again, the preacher's unmoved, right? I shall remain. The Lord will see me through this. After a while, the levee does break. The flood does rush over the church building, and now we have all, all that's left is the steeple, right? And the Preacher's up there, he's clinging onto the cross on top of the steeple, and, and a helicopter descends out of the clouds, and a state trooper calls down through a megaphone, and he says, hey, grab the ladder, preacher. This is your last chance. And once again, the preacher insists, the Lord's going to deliver me. Don't worry about it. 
I'll be okay. And predictably, he drowns, right? He was a, he's a very religious man, followed Jesus. So, of course, the preacher goes to heaven, and after a while in heaven, he gets this interview with God. And he has this burning question, right? Lord, I had unwavering faith in you. Why didn't you deliver me from that flood? And God just shakes his head, and he says, what did you want from me? I sent you two boats and a helicopter, right? I mean, could it be possible that we could miss altogether the messages that God is trying to send our way? Of course, (laughs) our thoughts are not his thoughts. Our ways are not his ways, right? Just look at how many people predicted the end of the world last week, right? Did you meet any of those people? Hey, we're still here, aren't we? So how do we know when God moments, or at least important moments, divine interruptions, let's call them, are happening so that we don't miss them? I think this is where the example of Jesus really can help us. I mean, he was fully human while he was on the planet, right? He, he got to feel the full treatment of interruptions and probably didn't like him either, right? I mean, if he's human, he knows that interruptions are not very comfortable. And I think we can watch how he responds to interruptions and see how we might do the same, right? I think that's a fair treatment. So turn with me this morning to Mark chapter 10. This morning we're going to take a look at a small passage that gives us some insight into how Jesus views and values interruptions. And in this story, he's interrupted, of all things, by children, right? Now, it seems like an odd interruption to start with, but how many of you have ever been interrupted by a child? I know you all should be raising your hands, right? This is relevant to us, so this will work. Um, so when you look at the context of Mark 10, before we get into this, pa- this passage, this passage we're going to look at comes immediately after a passage on marriage and divorce. And in Jesus' time, women were of a low, very low status. In some ways, they were treated more like property than like people, right? And so were the children. One scholar that I was reading about in this, this week, uh, Mark Strace, he, he describes the time as this, women and Children were often victims of exploitation and abuse in the ancient world as they are today. And and Jesus' concern for them in these passages are in line with his teaching elsewhere about defending the cause of the lowly and the outcast. So, So when we take as a whole this passage and the passage before it that we're going to be reading today, we see Jesus actually elevating the status of women and children because they're very important in the kingdom of God, right? So back to our story. Jesus and his disciples are traveling around, and, and, and crowds of people are obviously following Jesus, and they're wanting to hear from Jesus. They're wanting to be healed from Jesus, and they have all these crowds, right? And within those crowds were these people, probably parents, who were bringing little children to Jesus, right? And they apparently wanted Jesus to touch their children, not not to heal them, but to bless them, right? They want a blessing from Jesus for their kids. That would be something that we'd want, right? And we see that the disciples were running crowd control. That's what they were doing. That was their job, trying to keep needless interruptions from getting to Jesus. I mean, he's an important person, so you got to keep other people away from him, right? And yet we learn in the passage what Jesus considers 
an important interruption. <laughs> and they don't agree on that, right? If you know the story, <laughs> Mark 10, verse 13, people were bringing little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them, but the disciples rebuked them. And now when you look at this passage, this, the first word that I see there that needs a little bit of clarification is the people were bringing little children. In the original language, the verse is actually more specifically carrying. So there, we are talking about little children, right? Kids that were being carried to Jesus. Now, what were his disciples thinking when they, do, when they decide to rebuke <laughs> their parents bringing their kids to Jesus, right? I mean, obviously they're thinking something like, hey, we don't need kids taking up Jesus' valuable time, right? What a waste. He has more important things to do doesn't he? Then hang out with some kids, or so the disciples thought. <laughs> but they were revealing how they, what they saw as the value of kids, weren't they? And in the disciples' def defense, I mean, is this really an odd thought that they were having? I mean, if you spent even a few minutes with a kid, um, and especially when they're starting to get comfortable, you can understand that they become a little bit of a handful, and they just start talking. Have you noticed how much kids start talking once they, once they're comfortable? And what are they even talking about, right? Just so many words, right? So simply from an efficiency of time, yeah, you're not getting anywhere quickly when you're talking to a kid, right? Is that true? You guys are looking so blankly at me this morning. You got to help me out. Now, you've probably heard of the saying that children should be seen and not heard. I had to do a little bit of research on this saying to see where it, where it first showed up. It actually, from what I could find, it actually can be traced back to the 15th century. But we're way before that, first century, right? But doesn't it seem that the disciples are kind of adhering to this idea that children should be seen and not heard? And at times, I think that sometimes... Those are some of the principles that we live in in church. And what's odd to me is I, I like to watch people. I like to see how people interact with each other, right? Um, I think most of the pressure in keeping the kids muzzled <laughs> doesn't actually come from the congregation. It comes from the parents. They don't want to disturb anyone around them, right? So they, they're trying to, to keep their kids not being kids. <laughs> How's that going, right? It doesn't. And we wonder <laughs> at times why kids don't want to go to church. <laughs> and yes, there are appropriate times to be rambunctious. I agree with that. And times to be a little bit more restrained. I get it. But do you notice Jesus here? How does he deal with the interruption of children in his presence? He's got a lot going on. There's crowds around him, right? He's a busy, busy guy. What does he do when he finds out that his disciples had been saving him from the interruption of kids? Verse 14, when Jesus saw this, he was indignant. Indignant's a word we don't use much, right? What does the word indignant mean? Was he happy? <laughs> no. How about ticked? That might be a good indignant word, right? Let the little children come to me, he says, and do not hinder them. For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. 
Jesus is not put off by being with kids, right? He's put off by something else. He's put off by what the disciples do, right? He's indignant. He's ticked. I mean, it's the same type of language that's used when Jesus talks to the evil spirits or when Jesus is clearing the temple, when he is not happy, right? He's ticked. Jesus is clearly upset that he hadn't been interrupted, right? I don't think it's a stretch to say that the meaning of, of, of this is that if there was ever a time that Jesus wanted to be interrupted, it's right now, right? With the kids there. That's when he wanted to be interrupted. This is it. <laughs> I mean, read the verse again. Jesus wants kids to interrupt. Do not hinder them. Do not create difficulties in their path to me, right? He wants to hang out with kids. And more importantly, he wants them to hang out with him, right? Indeed, if the disciples had even been paying attention at all, right, they would have already known this. Flip back one chapter to Mark chapter 9. Jesus has already t- told his disciples about his feelings about these little people, right? Mark 9, verse 35, it says, Sitting down, Jesus called the twelve and said, Anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of everybody, right? And then he took a little child whom he placed among them, taking the child in his arms. He said to them, Whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but is actually welcoming the one who sent me. Now, who is Jesus talking about here? The one who sent me. He's talking about God, right? The Heavenly Father, right? Come to think of it, even the name Heavenly Father, doesn't that even give us a preference towards being his kids, right? What is Jesus saying here? When you welcome a kid, when you welcome a kid as a representative of him and in his name, in the way that he would welcome them, you are actually welcoming who? God himself. Whew. Talk about a worthy interruption, right? Think about that. Is that a strong statement? And don't miss Jesus' powerful next statement. Still in Mark 9, skip ahead to verse 42. It says, if anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble... It would be better for them if a large millstone were hung around their neck and they were thrown into the sea. I mean, wow. (laughs) Isn't that crazy? How often does Jesus talk like this? And what does it look like to cause a little one to stumble? That would be a better question to ask because we don't want to do that, right? Who wants a millstone thrown around your neck and thrown into the sea? Anyone? Volunteers? Woo! That's serious stuff, isn't it? We don't want to somehow cause them to not believe in Jesus. We better figure it out, right? Wouldn't you say? How important is our investment in our kids, our grandkids, and helping them to come to know Jesus? How important did Jesus see it as? I mean, is it okay if our kids interrupt us, especially when they're talking about Jesus, about God, about things that are important, right? To introduce our kids to God. Isn't that a divine moment, an incredible interruption to our lives? 
And this is not a new thought in Scripture. You see often in Scripture talking about kids and following God, right? One particular passage I want to bring out is Deuteronomy 6. The people of God are about to enter into the promised land, and, and they're really a brand new generation, right, that are, are, are going to follow Moses towards the, the promised land, new followers of God. So Moses is introducing them to the commandments. We talked about the commandments all summer. And listen to how he describes what they should do with these commandments, right? Deuteronomy 6, starting with verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home, when you walk along the road, when you lie down, when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands. Bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses on, and on your goats, on your gates. I mean, if, if this were today, maybe they'd even say, get some tattoos, right? I mean, just put the word out there so everyone is talking about it, right? What is Moses saying? Have a continuous conversation about God, right? Include him in all of your conversations, whether you're on the road, whether you're, on, whether you're at home, whether you're at the dinner table, whether you're at McDonald's. I mean, wherever you are, always include God as part of your family's life, right? That's what he's talking about. Always include God as part of your family's life. How often do we share our walk with the Lord with our kids and grandkids? Do we show through our everyday life what a life with Jesus looks like? I mean, think about it. I mean, watch any TV show, and what kind of life do we see? Do they ever give thanks to God? <laughs> do they ever talk to him? Do they ever talk about how, yeah, I was reading in the Word, and, and this informed my decision to do this? Do they ever do that? What is their view of life? None of it, right? This week we were celebrating um, <laughs> Sydney's birthday. I can't, can't talk now. Um, our oldest and she's just gotten back from a trip to Hawaii. She went to Honolulu, and, you know, I'm trying to have a conversation with her. And Wendy and I, we watch Hawaii Five O every once in a while. Um, so I was commenting on the fact that the only thing I really knew about Honolulu was what I learned from Hawaii Five O. So what do I know about Honolulu is, well, every night someone gets murdered, <laughs> right? And then... Every day, there's this team of people who try to solve the murder, and they, they're willing to risk their life for it, right? And somewhere along the way in their, in their journeys, they sprinkle in a hopeful love interest somewhere here and there, right? That's what their lives are like. They're in this amazingly beautiful place, right? Yet do they ever talk to God about it, thank Him for it? I mean, and we watch these empty lives over and over and over and over again, right? We see them. I mean, these are the lives. These are our heroes, right? These are our stories. And they don't have anything to do with God. I'm not trying to say they're bad. I'm just saying they're empty, right? Where are our kids going to learn what a normal Christian life looks like? A life where they get to know Jesus. A life where they find real purpose, real meaning, not just 
solving a murder, right? Jesus said, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. Do not be a stumbling block to them. Make it easy to get to me, right? I've heard several people say lately, oh, I just, I just want my kids to choose to follow Jesus. I, I don't want to influence that at all. I don't want to push them towards Jesus. I just want them to figure it out for themselves. Are you crazy? I mean, that is the opposite of what the Bible says to do, right? What Jesus wants. Keep reading in Mark 10, verse 16. What does Jesus do? He, he took the children in his arms, he placed his hands on them, and he blessed them. Now, if what, <laughs> if what the Bible says is true, what if the creator of the world, Jesus wants to bless our kids? What if the loving Savior of the world wants to be with our kids? Jesus allows them to interrupt his ministry because they are his ministry, right? Are you catching this with me? Verse 14 again, Jesus said, Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these, right? I mean, do you see it? Isn't that perfect timing for a child to come into the service? Verse 15, it says, Truly I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. I mean, what does Jesus mean by this? Do kids have some type of special privilege when it comes to following Jesus? Indeed, is there even something that they can teach us about following Jesus? truth is that the longer that we live on this planet, this is just the truth, the more we are inundated with this message about a life not including God, right? The more we're on this planet, the more TV shows we watch, the more whatever, right? The more we learn more and more how to not allow God to be our king, not to include him at all. In fact, not even believing that there's a God, right? And that he has no involvement in our lives anyway, right? And this can so easily become our worldview, can't it? What we talked about earlier, that there is no one who knows best for my life but me. There's no one above me. There's no one up there. Truly, studies show that most people settle into their worldview by the time they are somewhere between 9 and 12 years old. Nine and 12 years old. So what we believe about the world by the time in our lives, <laughs> nine to 12 years old, our lives become set in that thought process. It becomes really, really, really difficult to change our thought process after that fact. It would take a major, major interruption in our life to change. And so not surprisingly, most people, if they're going to decide to believe in Jesus, to follow Jesus, they do it as a kid, Right? when they actually believe in this bigger world, that there actually is a God out there that cares and who created this whole thing and loves us and there's this bigger hope in the world before they become disillusioned by what they see. I mean, have you noticed that kids more naturally see and believe about God? Have you noticed that? I mean, it's proven. They almost automatically just assume that there's a God out there. Do you think that Jesus knew this? 
He did create us, right? Do you think that this is why he is so adamant about the little children coming to him, right? He's so adamant about it. The truth is that kids have a limited time before the world gets their hands on them, before the world starts convincing them other things, right? Teaches them to not trust anyone but themselves. There is no one that you're going to depend on anyway, right? Think about it. Kids, they naturally trust. They naturally depend. They are okay with that. They don't even know how to put a mask on, right? They're just them, just them, right? That is so hard for us as adults, isn't it? They are such an amazing example to us in faith. They really are. When is the last time you hung out with a kid and actually talked to them about God? Before they cho- choose, chose to believe that they're, they're in this tiny little world, right? It's fascinating, actually, to talk, to talk to kids about God. You don't have to ask them if God exists. They already know it, right? Unless they've, already, they've gone through some traumatic experience, they already know he exists. All you have to do is ask them what he's like. You know that the Bible teaches us that God is not a force. He's, he's a person. He's not an emotional roller coaster. But according to the Bible, God has a personality. He loves, he talks, he laughs, he desires, he cries, he has compassion, he has great ability, he's smart, he's, he's active, right? He's, he's all those things. And this is the God that kids know. They know this God, right? <laughs> Talk to your kids and grandkids about it. Live as if this is true, that the God is really like this, right? Talk about your journey with God, with your kids, your grandkids. I mean, trust me, they have all sorts of things to say about this topic. I mean, I had so many conversations with my kids. I'd take them, I'd take them out on a date, and I'd just give some advice. Um, don't just talk to your kids when you're angry at them. Talk to them when you are happy with them, right? I would take them out on a date. And it would be fun. They would actually enjoy it. <laughs> That's nice. Um, and I would ask them, do you, know, do you know that God loves you? I was like, Dad, I already know that, right? I already know that God loves me. Do you know that, that God cares about you? <sighs> God, God cares about me. I know that. I already know that. And that whatever difficult things you're going through in life, he's there. He's with you. Do you know that? Yeah, I know that, Dad then keep believing that, right? Let's continue to encourage them to believe that because God is with them. It's worth the interruption in your life to spend time on the road, at the dinner table, (laughs) wherever you are in life. Yes, even at church, wherever you are, sharing with your kids and grandkids about God. Children do not hinder the work of God. They are a welcome interruption to every believer's life. And they're an amazing example of joy and faith, aren't they? Mark 10, 15, Truly I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. I mean, when we recognize that God's work isn't interrupted by children, (laughs) instead it's enhanced by children, we can embrace the interruptions of children, right? As, as the grace of God. God isn't phased. I think this is good information for you to know. 
God isn't phased when your toddler interrupts your daily devotions, <laughs> your daily prayers. The time is not ruined. Just invite them into the conversation, right? I mean, when your teenager comes in and explodes with these huge emotions and feelings, sitting and listening is not a waste of time. It's not. And encouraging them and reminding them of, of what God wants to do in their life, that he's there for them, that's not a waste of time. God's work isn't evaluated with efficiency reports, <laughs> right? It's not about efficiency. It's about being effective, and effectiveness comes through love. Verse 14, again, let the little children come to me. Do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. The people of God, <laughs> hopefully you got the message. What would it look like to embrace, I mean, within reason, the interruptions of children as God at work? That when we're being interrupted by a kid, that we're actually seeing God trying to get our attention about something really, really important, right? I mean, will we choose to take these moments, these divine interruptions, as seriously as Jesus did? Right? And some of the most important moments in their lives, in our lives, even in Jesus' life, right? This was a huge, huge deal to him. Would you pray with me? Lord God, we are so thankful that your word helps us to understand where, where your perspective is. And we are so thankful, Lord, that your plans are so much better than ours for our own lives <laughs> that we aren't as smart we aren't the smartest one in the room <laughs> when we're talking about making plans and then it's okay for you to interrupt our lives and lord i do just thank you also for the kids that you've put into our lives we're so blessed to have kids in our life we're so blessed to have grandkids and great-grandkids in our lives lord would you allow us to see them for how you see them as amazing creations of you, worth every bit of investment that we can put into them, Lord, to help them to understand how to follow you, how to have you as part of their lives. Lord, help us, help us as your people to love on these kids, to share our lives with these kids, to share our lives with you, with these kids, Lord, wherever we are in our lives, whether we're on the road or at the dinner table, <laughs> whether we're at home, whether we're at the restaurant, wherever we are, Lord, to just share life together, life with you together. And we will give you all the praise. For you are worthy of that praise. In Jesus' name, amen. I'd like to share a video before our benediction. In John 10.10, 10, Jesus said, The thief's purpose is to steal and kill and destroy. My purpose is to give them a rich and satisfying life. This is a powerful reminder that who we follow matters. That's why it's so important for us to help our children start their faith journey on the right path. Sadly, half the children today who grow up in the church are leaving their faith behind instead of living it out after high school. That should deeply disturb us. We cannot be content to stand by and watch half our children just walk away from Jesus. 
So what's our strategy for stopping this terrible church trend? Do we need more money? Do we need more fun? More excitement? I don't think so. I believe we need more influence. Influence is time plus relationship. The stronger your relationship is with someone and the more time you spend with them determines the amount of influence you have. Let's find out who has influence over our children so we can better understand how to help our kids develop a strong faith they are living instead of leaving. The number one influence in a child's life is by far their parents. Our children spend 3,000 hours a year at home with their family. Children spend 1,260 hours a year at school. Most children today spend 1,095 hours every year interacting with media. And children spend 416 hours a year with their friends. Finally, children spend about 40 hours a year at church. So, should the church be surprised when their message of faith gets rejected by half the kids? The problem isn't the message or even how the message gets delivered. The problem is the church has a shortage of time, and therefore we have very little influence. But what if our children's ministry strategically partnered with the home? What if we worked together to maximize our time and relationships? I believe our influence would soar, and many of our children would embrace the faith, hope, and love Jesus is offering them. So here are three opportunities to partner with us this year. Number one, talk to your kids about their faith. Deuteronomy 6 tells us that teaching God's command to our children is a matter of life and death. In verse 7, it says, talk about them when you are at home and when you are on the road and when you're going to bed and when you're getting up. Every lesson we teach at church is summarized and handed off to you with discussion questions. Make a habit of talking through this take-home sheet at home, on your way home, before tucking your kids into bed. And number two, talk to your kids about your faith. The truth is, your faith impacts your child's faith more than anything else. We simply cannot pass along to our kids something we don't possess. This doesn't mean we need to be perfect, just real. And number three, serve in your kids' church classroom. Before you dismiss this idea, let me explain to you why this simple step of faith is so powerful. Serving in our children's ministry allows you to experience the lessons firsthand alongside your child. This shared experience can naturally be discussed throughout the week. You'll also serve alongside other adult volunteers and children, which allow you to build strong, positive relationships for your family. And when your children see you step out of your comfort zone and serve God, they see faith in action. You will experience God in a new way and your faith will grow. As your children grow, they may begin to serve too. Research shows that teens that serve in children's ministry are much more likely to have a faith that sticks after high school. The bottom line is our children desperately need a faith that lasts. Our church needs to magnify the message of faith by combining our influence with parents. So, will you take a step of faith this year and partner with us for the sake of our kids before they just walk away? Our benediction passage this morning is actually from Joshua 24. Joshua, at this point in, in the Bible, he's an old man, and he has some of his final words. And he says, Now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods your ancestors worshipped beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt and serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourself this day whom you will serve whether the gods your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates or the gods of Hawaii Five O, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. 
Now, I hope that you've heard the message this morning. Sharing our life with God, with our kids, it really shouldn't be a heavy, heavy thing for us. It really should be a delight for us. This should be something that, that we enjoy doing, right? This is allowing our kids to experience Jesus, right? So as you go through this week, as you drive, as you sit, as you walk, as you do, do it with the Lord and live this lifestyle in a way that might influence others to do the same. Amen? Number six, let me give you this blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. You are sent.